Thank you, Ethan. Um, you ever thought about that? Um, why should we gain from his reward? And if, if you have ever meditated on that for a little while, the, the next line is, is really all that comes to mind. You know, you cannot give an answer. Um, that, that he was crowned with glory because he died. And we, for some reason, get to share in that glory. That'll give you a brain cramp. Um, but it's, it's the good kind. It's kind of like when you go to Dairy Queen, you know, and you get, you get like a brain freeze, I guess. And it's, and it's so good, but it hurts so bad, but it's good still. And it's kind of better. It's, it's more sweet than it is bitter. But anyway, um, we are going to be talking um, tonight about an issue. And I've got to confess, um, I'm not as comfortable with this passage as, as I would like to be because it conveys some truths um, that I am still kind of trying to grasp. And I don't know if you've ever had a passage like that when you're reading in the Scriptures. And, and it's so sweet because you see maybe what it means, but you don't see all dimensions of it yet. So hopefully um, you will join me just in kind of this little journey of mine. And go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. Um, kind of a familiar passage, and I'll turn with you. I guess I, that'd be good. Um, a familiar passage, if, if you've uh, walked through the Gospels very much, it's, it's the, the story of uh, the vine and the branches. Uh, kind of has a, sp- a, a special significance with me. My grandfather who was very influential in, in, in my younger years, uh, when he was at a church, one of the churches he pastored, um, a lot of times people couldn't uh, pay him for services he did. Uh, he, you know, is a Baptist pastor in the rural south in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, I, he, he would tell me all kinds of stories Stories about when a church was about to call him, um, and he would have to drive, you know, about a hundred miles to go visit this church. And he and the members of the church uh, that he was that he was in in conversation with would both have to save gas in in gallon jugs because there was a there was a gasoline ration going on. And just all these stories that just absolutely blow my mind because I I, I don't you know. That, that just hasn't been my generation. We, you know, my generation is, has always had plenty. But uh, one time he did a funeral for a family, and the family paid him with a silver dollar. That's all they could afford. Uh, they had a silver dollar, and, a fa- and in fact, it wasn't a dollar that they, that they just had that they would use for currency. It was actually like a family heirloom. And that's all they had, so that's, that's what they gave him for doing uh, the funeral for this uh, family member. And, and likewise, there was a man in, in his church, and I don't know if, you know, I, I don't want to mislead you. I don't know if this was given to him in return for some kind of service, but he had a, like a wooden plaque about that big. And the man was just a master at carving things. And he hand-carved this, this wooden plaque that says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And as I grew up, I just, you know, he, that was a conversation piece. He would tell me stories. 
And he would use that, and, and next thing you know, we'd be off on all kinds of rabbit trails, and he'd be telling me different stories about him being in the ministry. And, uh, you know, I was just soaking it all in. But tonight, that's the passage that we're going to be talking about, that we're going to be reading through, and we're going to be trying to understand perhaps more fully the love of God. Um, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm drawing some stuff from a, from a man that I really look up to. I've never met him, but I still look up to him. He is probably one of the most um, intelligent men uh, who, who is a believer of our time. He's, he's a theologian, and his name is D.A. Carson. And he wrote a book, it's a very small book. I suggest it to you if you, you know, have some time to read. But it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now, why is the love of God a difficult doctrine, we might ask ourselves. And, you know, well, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we expect that the doctrine of, of the Trinity would be difficult. You know, Trinity is actually a word that's never used in the Bible. But we believe it's true because of what the Bible affirms. So the, the, the Trinity is a difficult doctrine. Uh, pl- plenty of, uh, of doctrines of substitutionary atonement. Uh, election, reprobation, whatever the case may be. We have tons of difficult doctrines in our faith. But we usually don't regard the love of God as being one of those. Why is that? It's because I think we've got this picture that has seeped into the church from our culture that the love of God is something that is very simple and and it... uh, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. Maybe, maybe Dr. Carson can help me out. Uh, he has um, gone through basically and listed five ways that the love of God is manifested in the Bible. Okay, he, he, said, he said, listen, there are probably more. We could probably write volumes on it because the love of God is so immense. We could never really exhaust the subject. But I'll give you at least five of these. And I think one of them is very important for us to understand in our Christian life. But here are the five. He says, first of all, there's a peculiar kind of love that the Father has for the Son. And that the Son has for the Father. In other words, there is a kind of love that is experienced between the Father and the Son that, that is really different than what we can experience in creation. Why? Because, you know, we're not deity. We're not God, you know. So obviously we can't experience love as God does with himself. Uh, you know, as one person of the Trinity experiences with another person of the Trinity. That'll, that'll boggle your mind right there, just thinking on that one. The love that the Father has for the Son. The love that God has for himself. Secondly, there's the providential love that God has over all creation. And we understand that, that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, he has a love that has been given to everything in creation. Because he created things and he created them good, he has given things, uh, he has given his love to all creation in a particular way. Uh, thirdly, there is the salvific love for the fallen world. We understand this from John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish and, and on it goes. So there's another kind of love that is kind of distinct from these other two. Fourthly, there is a love toward the elect or those who will come to Christ. In other words, God loves me, a believer, not necessarily more 
in quantity, but he loves me as a believer in a different way than he loves a non-believer. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Christ, Christ said, I love the church. Uh, and, and then fifthly, he has a love toward his people, toward his church that is conditioned on obedience. Now, wait a second, Greg. Are you, are you trying to tell me that God's love is not unconditional? That's not what I heard at the crusade. That's, that's, yeah, that's not what I heard when I accepted Jesus. I, I heard that, that his love is unconditional. There's nothing I can do in this world. Neither height nor depth nor, nor sword nor famine nor nakedness. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I affirm that. But which kind which manifestation of the love of God are we talking about? And that's kind of what we're dealing with. So if you would, as we get into our text in John chapter 15, go ahead and follow with me. Follow with me. We're just going to be reading the first 11 verses, and uh, they will be also on the screen. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. I'm reading from the ESV, uh, as one of my friends likes to call it, the extra spiritual version. Um, I guess that's better than the nearly inspired version. But anyway, I could go on. Verse 1. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire... And burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This, uh, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you understand now um, why this is kind of a, a difficult topic to speak on because you understand I'm not taking the majority view. The majority view is to categorically say God's love is unconditional. But isn't there a way in which we can separate ourselves from his love that's what that's what the scripture seems to imply God, after all jesus christ himself wouldn't say abide in me if it was possible to depart you, you know uh, does that make sense um so here is a Here's the deal. Since the Bible teaches that there is one sense in which we may leave the love of God, it makes sense that we should give the utmost importance to learning how we can abide in the love of God. In order to understand this love, this conditional kind of love, 
we must understand the relationship of the vine to the branches. First of all, and, and again, in, in, in typical Baptist fashion, I've uh, set forth three points. So my first point is this. The branch exists only to produce fruit. Go, go back to verse 8. Verse 8 says this. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the, the whole purpose of a vineyard existing is to produce fruit. The whole purpose of the vine's existence is so that fruit may abound. And so we see the parallel with us. The only reason that we exist is so that we may bear fruit, so that we may glorify the Father. That is a difficult doctrine to teach. Uh, I, I say this in love, but, but hear my heart. If you are living under the belief that you exist as a Christian for any other ultimate purpose than to glorify God, you are woefully mistaken. That is the only reason we exist. You're like, man, that'll humble you. Well, that's kind of the point. When one comes to realize this, when, come, when one comes to realize that the only reason he has been put here on earth is to glorify the Father, there, there are a, a whole host of implications that follow. It's like the mind is, is uh, inundated with these new realities. It's like the mind is open. Well, wait a second. You mean that the, the only reason that I exist is to glorify the Father? Well, man, that kind of touches on everything. That, that touches on, on how I spend my time. That touches on my finances. That touches on my, on my home life behind closed doors. Man, that touches on how I, you know, what I do on the weekends. That, that touches on everything. There is not a part of my life that is unaffected. First of all, living one's individual Christian life for any other purpose, this is the first realization that you come to after you, after you, you are awakened to this truth that I only exist to glorify God. Living one's individual Christian life for any other purpose represents a, a woefully deficient motive for being a Christian. I don't know what gospel you were preached. I'll be honest with you, when I was, when I was growing up, I, I had a great pastor who preached biblical sermons. But I also was growing up in this certain culture that preached a gospel that very infrequently touched on the glory of God. You, you mean to tell me that I was saved for God's glory? No, I thought I was saved so that I could go to heaven. I thought I was saved so that I could be happy. I thought I was saved so that I could be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you believe that gospel then that is fine. But just don't confuse it with the biblical one. Secondly, if you understand that the fact that we are put here on earth to glorify God changes your individual life, the second realization you come to is it changes our corporate life as a church. Because after all, I mean, that's, that's what the church is, right? The church is a, is a body of individuals. What is true of the individuals, by extension, is true of the body. Right? If we have a church full of people, uh, and I'm not saying this is the case, don't, don't misunderstand me. If, if, 
a church is, is embodied with a group of people who, who have a false understanding of the love of God, if the individuals do, then the whole church will be known for that. That's why our individual lives are so very pivotal. Because what is known about us as individuals is known about our church in the, in the public square. That has earth-shattering implications. It is up to us. It is up to we individuals. The responsibility is on our shoulders how this church will be viewed in the public square. What are people going to say about us at the barnyard? I don't, you know, maybe Ray, you could give us some insight on that. But, you know, people, people may see us and they say, yeah, that's, that's that church right around the corner. I remember, remember when the church building burned and everything. I, you know, that's, I, I hear they got things going on. I don't know. It's, really, it's up to us. My second point, and this comes from, from verses 4 and 5, the branch is completely dependent on the vine to produce fruit. Let me just meditate on that for a second. The branch is completely dependent on the vine to produce fruit. And, this, and, I, and I'm drawing this from, from verses 4 and 5. Um, read along with me in verses 4 and 5. I'm going to backtrack for a second. Verses 4 or 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing is one of those words that doesn't leave much room <laughs> for anything. <laughs> um, and and here's, here's the hard truth. To even be able to glorify the Father, you must have the help of the Father. You understand, that was our, that was our predicament before salvation. Before salvation, very simply, we couldn't glorify God. After salvation, we're equipped with the Spirit, we're equipped with every good thing, we can now glorify Him. You see, you see here's, here's the issue. Uh, this truth is particularly humbling when you engage into service with the Lord. You th- think about, t- take me for example. I spent a good little amount of time preparing for this. And we could come together. We could gather in our church building. We could sing songs. We could read his word. And I could give this, I could wax eloquent for about 30 minutes. But if it is not joined with the grace of God, it will be of no spiritual good. If we are not totally, wholly dependent on him for our strength, we will fail. Numerically, spiritually, and in every other way. Thirdly, any branch that does not produce fruit is pruned. And I'm drawing this from verses 2 and 6. It's interesting how, how, how John kind of constructed this passage. It kind of bounces back and forth. But go to verse 2 and then jump down to verse 6 with me. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch he does bear, uh, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And now down to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away 
like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That's, that's not a very optimistic picture, um, but it is true. Because, see, here, here, here's what happens. Because we have established, we've established that the sole purpose of the branch is to produce fruit, right? I mean, you understand. What use, and, and I, don't know if, I don't know if people in, in, the, in the winery or vineyard business still use the term vine dresser. I, that kind of seems to me like it's kind of outdated. Um, where, I, where I come from in the foothills of North Carolina, um, they have just recently realized that our soil is chemically identical to the soil in the Napa Valley. So we've seen like a phasing out of the tobacco industry. I mean, yes, that's what we do. But we've seen a phasing out of the tobacco industry. We've been seeing these vineyards and wineries popping up everywhere because it's, I mean, it's basically the eastern, the eastern seaboard's version of the Napa Valley. So I don't know if those people use that term anymore, vine dresser, but let's say, put yourself in the shoes of a, of a vineyard owner. If you have vines that are not producing grapes, what good are they to you? No good. You're going to prune them. You're going to cast them out. Because you are in the business of producing fruit. In your branches, in your, in your vines. In the same way, God is in the business of producing fruit in us. And if we fail to produce that fruit, if we fail to bring him something, we are of no use. And what we must understand is that a failure on the part of the branch to produce fruit is simply the result of some kind of bad relationship between the branch and the vine. You understand that? I've got, a, I've got a very large oak tree in my backyard. And it's kind of becoming scarier each year because it could hit the house. And this oak tree, each year, when a, when a big storm, usually in hurricane season, when we get some of that, you know, that, that comes up, uh, pretty large branches will fall out of that tree because they've been dead and they've just been waiting for the right storm to come along. The reason they died was because something happened with the relationship to, to, the, to the roots of the tree to the, and to the body of the tree. In the same way, if we are not producing fruit, it is because there has been some kind of break in the relationship between, the, between us and the one from whom we gather our strength. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If our relationship is somehow severed with the source, we can do nothing. Fortunately, for the true branches, God promises pruning, which is not usually fun. Hebrews um, chapter 12 tells us that um, it is not always enjoyable, but God disciplines so that, he may be, so that we may be holy. However, the fact remains. So, so basically, I, I say all this just to lay the groundwork so that, how can, so that we can better understand this facet of the love of God, we must understand that in order to experience God's love to the fullest, we are accountable, we are responsible to abide in him. Abide. It it comes from from this Greek word, minnow, to remain, to tarry. Would Would you abide in me? 
It's the call of God. Would you remain in me? The very question implies that it is possible to not remain in him. It It is possible to depart, to cut relations to a certain extent. This truth is not only present here in, in John, but it's also in, included in, in the small letter of Jude. Um, verses 20 and 21, there's only one chapter. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in, in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, here it is, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. Uh, further, this truth comes as no surprise Uh, to anyone familiar with the Old Testament. Many times in Old Testament literature, the very same vine reference is made concerning Israel. Interestingly enough, it usually has to do with Israel's failure to remain in him. We, uh, (laughs) we, We see this conditional side of God's love in, in Exodus. God presented himself and you understand it, we all affirm this, God presented himself as the one who would show himself to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations of of whom? To a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Hmm. So, in one sense, in, in one sense, not totally, don't hear me to be making this categorical statement that involves every facet of the love of God, but in one sense, experiencing the fullness of God's love is conditioned on our obedience. It is a fool who thinks that he can live like the world and enjoy the full measure of God's love. That goes against everything that the canon teaches. There's a fool who believes that. This theme is is inescapable if abiding in the love of God proves to the world, proves to the world, it, it evidences that we are true branches. Uh, we will not be counted among those cast into the fire. doesn't mean that it's some kind of works-based salvation that we can lose if we all of a sudden don't measure up. But we set ourselves apart. We say, I am a true branch. I want to live my life in such a way that I am abiding in him in such a way that I can't even for a minute be associated with those who are being pruned. It is a exhortation, a command of God that he has given us to keep us faithful. It's a beautiful truth. Sometimes God gives us commandments to keep us faithful. You know, it's like a lot of people struggle with the warning passages in Hebrews. You mean I can lose my salvation? Well, of course not. Whoever the Father gives to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Um, so as I, as I kind of wind down here, I hope I have presented a coherent argument Sometimes my thoughts are a little scattered. Passages like these serve a, a dual purpose. Um, first of all, it, it holds up a picture to the culture, to anyone who, who is not a believer. It holds up a picture uh, to which the culture and, and we as Christians can compare ourselves. 
Okay, so that's, that's genuine Christianity. Okay, now how do I measure up? Am, am I there? Am I, am I not? It gives, it gives the culture a picture to which they could compare themselves. And then hopefully, by the grace of God, if they find that they have fallen short, they will repent and believe in Him. It's a wonderful truth. He's made it so clear. And secondly, it serves the second purpose to warn any believers who are not abiding in the fullest sense that they should not fool themselves into believing that they are experiencing the fullness of God's love. The reason that I deliver this kind of word with such passion and at points maybe such vehemence is that my generation by and large believes that the love of God is one of the five and only one of the five. They have taken this big, huge concept of God's love and we've collapsed it into this saving love. Because they've been taught partly good doctrine. They've been taught when you are saved, God doesn't save you for the time being. And we have taken that and we have capitalized on it to the point that we have said, I can never depart from the love of God whatsoever. It is with a broken heart that I meet with some of my friends from high school, that I meet new people in the culture that, you know, involved for a short time now in, in student ministry and being a member of the church at large for most of my life. This is a cancer, a cancer that is going to kill us as the church because we view the love of God as if it is granted in all circumstances. The love of God has become a license to sin. And I pray that if you have any concern for the gospel of Christ, you will pray for the rising generations who don't understand that they need to abide. They need to tarry. They need to remain in Him. Would you pray with me? God, we have hope in you. We have no hope in our world. We have no hope in the intentions, in the good intentions of man. We have no hope in in governments, powers, and principalities. But God, because you are sovereign, we have hope in you, and rightfully so. I pray that you would take these hearts tonight and break them 
and that with broken hearts you would piece together a people who are passionate for the coming generation. That you would piece together a people beyond the reaches of of these walls, beyond Abner Creek Road, that you would raise up your church, that it would teach that we must abide and that we need your strength to do it. My heart breaks for those who believe that your love is something that is cheap. Help us to never forget the fact, God, that only by abiding can your joy be in us, as, as, your, as your son Jesus said, and that our joy may be full. Help us not to buy in to the world's cheap imitation of the real thing, that, that our happiness can be found, that our joy can be found in temporal things. Help us to buy in fully in your love. Help us to abide in you. God, the, it is dire for the survival of your church. We have hope tonight in our sovereign God. To you, God, we give all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Just about that you would approach me about that. Sometimes when I, yeah, you understand, when I treat a, a passage that I'm not 100% comfortable with, uh, sometimes what you say once and is on the podcast forever needs clarification. So please don't hesitate to do that. You guys are dismissed. I love you all.